Today we are going to just go through this one verse, and I have some applications here. It's possible some of them will spill into next week because next week is verse 8. There are a lot of concepts here. And the passage is 1 Corinthians 2, 7, and I'll read the text on the next slide, which will give us the overview, which will be about God's now-revealed wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. I'll read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll continue on. On the contrary, we speak God's wisdom, hidden wisdom, and a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. God predestined before the ages for our glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and promises and our hope. Give us wisdom to know what you've said, humility to realize that we need you so badly, and understanding to apply these things to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when Eric first preached a sermon, and there were a whole lot of concepts. He sometimes tells a story. And we had lunch, and I said, well, we need to not just count verses, but concepts. Well, I'm trying to stick with that wisdom, but this one verse has a lot of concepts. So we're only doing one verse, but there's a lot of concepts. So that's why we're taking some time. As we're on this slide, let me read the context, which we've covered previously. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 6, and then it goes on to this verse. Paul said previously, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And then our verse, we speak God's wisdom. Now, to remind you, the mature are the Christians, all Christians, not just hyper-Christians. And so now I want to go to some key questions. We had some last time. As we go to this slide, I intend to answer these questions. First one. In what sense is God's wisdom hidden? Second one, what does Paul mean by mystery? Thirdly, what is the implication of predestined? And then, when is this before the ages? And fifth point, or question, how can God's wisdom be for our glory? We have quite a few concepts in one verse. So let's dig in and see what we can learn from what God has revealed in Scripture. Now, it starts out here, appropriately translated, on the contrary. And so this adversative is pointing out what God's wisdom is is and what's revealed. We speak God's hidden wisdom. So the first concept is how can God's wisdom be considered hidden? The Greek word for hidden Apocrypto is used less often than just the normal word crypto, which would be to hide. This one with the prefix means to hide away. The big question is, how is it possible that God would hide away his wisdom? What's the point of that? We need to answer that question. And if it's hidden away, we want to know, how can we possibly know it? Can you know something that God hid away? Well, the answer we'll see as we go through this verse. The verse is in a perfect passive participle, exactly as it was, Colossians 1.26, Ephesians 3.9. And we'll be talking about some of these things in our application. So the mature are Christians. The wisdom is what God has revealed, Christ crucified. So as it says on one of the points I put on the slide, In this context, this wisdom has been revealed to all believers. Now, the reason I'm very passionate about this and making sure we understand is that I was deceived myself about this some decades ago. 
and I ended up looking for that higher, more pious, secret wisdom that only some Christians knew about. And I had tape. Back then, we had cassette tapes. Is anybody old enough to remember them? Probably most of us. And I'd listen to them about the secret to the being the higher order Christian. But then I realized, after a lot of pain and sorrow, that what God has revealed is not discovered by some higher order elite mystic Christians, but it's revealed, and the reason that people don't know it is because they haven't believed the gospel and come to Christ. Those who know Christ have embraced by faith, by God's grace, Christ crucified, which is the wisdom of God. So, let me just cite a scholar, and the reason I do is I want to give us a high regard for objective truth that's revealed by scholarship. If we reject that, we'll end up following some pious-sounding preacher that hasn't really done the work to know what the Scripture says. So let me cite one such person, Dr. Gardner. By the way, please know this. If someone has a good insight to a certain verse, it doesn't imply that whatever they said is right at every single point. We need to read for what it says. But I like what this Dr. Gardner said. It is a privilege, he says, of all Christians that they have had these mysteries of salvation revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. The corollary, Gardner says, is that no one group of Christians can therefore claim to have received more hidden things than any other. Continuing, to have received the revelation of Christ crucified is what it is to be a Christian, unquote. From the uh, Zondervan Evangelical Commentary in the New Testament. So, what does that mean? Don't go join some secret group that knows something that's not revealed to anybody else but them. What's revealed is from God, it's clear, it's meaningful, and we can know it. It's not a secret. The only thing that's mysterious about this hidden wisdom is that the fallen, rebellious rulers of this age didn't know it and wouldn't know it and couldn't know it because they are opposed to Christ. Now, I'll deal with Colossians 1.26 in an application. And we'll continue on here. But I want to cite a verse. If you would turn to this in your Bibles, Luke 10.21. Luke 10.21. This is something that Jesus said. Luke 10.21. And at that very time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this was, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So Jesus rejoiced that God hid things from those who think they knew something, the religious uh, leaders and the people that rejected Christ, revealed them to infants, that is, disciples here. Now, the context in verse 20 was, don't rejoice that you have authority over demons, but that your names are recorded in heaven. What's important to you today? Authority? Knowing something that ordinary Christians don't know, having higher status than other Christians, or that your names are recorded in heaven by God's grace. There's so much to learn there, but we need to continue on. Let's go to the next idea that we need to learn. 1 Corinthians 2, 7b. We speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. There's certain irony there. If it's a mystery, it's hidden, and it's not known, how could we speak it? But Paul spoke for God, the authoritative apostle, and this wisdom, as we've learned earlier, 
is Christ, and particularly Christ crucified. So how is this a mystery that they speak? It's not mysterious. It's not cryptic. And mystery doesn't modify how Paul spoke. He was clear enough. But what it was that he did speak is not what people wanted to hear. It's not what the rulers wanted to hear. It's not what the civil authorities wanted to hear. It's what God had revealed. Now, turn with me, please, to Acts 26. We'll start with verse 23. I want to show you that even before people that had the power to do away with Paul and his message, he spoke the same message. Turn to Acts 26, 23 through 26, and I'll cite this. I want to show you that this is public truth and it's not cryptic. And in the context, Paul was called before authorities. Let me quote, that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, Paul said. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Look at this. But I utter words of sober truth. I remember a debate where an emergent leader said, why do you have to have adjectives with truth? Well, the reason he didn't want adjectives is because adjectives help us define things. Why can't we just have truth? Your truth, my truth, everybody's truth, nobody's truth. No, Paul spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and he called them words of sober truth. Let me read on. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice for this was, has not been done in a corner. That's what I mean by public truth. It's clear. It's revealed. It's spoken. So it's not the secrets like the pagans had. In Asia Minor, in Greece, in the ancient world, they also had their secrets, but you didn't get to know them until you went through all the rigors of the initiation. Some... Uh, holy men, uh, witch doctors, shamans, whoever they were, they knew secrets that you didn't know. That's not the gospel. The gospel is public. Jesus Christ was crucified publicly. And when he was raised from the dead, he appeared to many witnesses. So here before Festus and Agrippa too, Paul said, the king knows about these things. One of the persons said, you're out of your mind. Oh no, this really happened. Let me make a statement about that. Paul uses mystery to denote what would be unknown had God not chosen to reveal it. Absolutely. Let me quote this. This is shown in Ephesians 6, 19. Paul said this, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Paul Ask for prayer to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Make known with boldness. Why would someone who, as we read Acts, is so bold and so sure of himself, ask for prayer about boldness? Because the entire world, whether it's Greek, Jewish, any sort of person who doesn't know Christ, is intimidating anyone who would stand firm in the gospel. Christ crucified is not popular with anyone. I saw that earlier. So if Paul needed prayer for boldness, we do. But we don't want to be bold about anything but the mystery of the gospel, which is in fact revealed. Christ crucified. Let's go to the next point that we can learn from 2 Corinthians 2, 7. By the way, CSB is the new version of Holman Christian Standard Bible. 
Why did I choose that one? Because the research from the Greek convinced me that this was a very solid translation. And so that's why I'm using it. But your other versions will give you the same ideas in most cases. A wisdom God predestined before the ages. Now, as I said, there's a lot of issues and concepts here. Some of them are revealed, but they're not necessarily what everyone wants to hear. And up front, I want to say this. The only authoritative binding word of God, we learned that in Sunday school, is what revealed in the Bible and under the new covenant clearly through Christ and his apostles. So what is this predestined wisdom? The first thing we need to know is it's still talking about Christ and Christ crucified, rejected by Jews and Gentiles, but revealed by God to those who believe. Now, this particular word, proarizo, is just an etymology to beforehand draw out the boundaries. And it's used in this sense in six passages, Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29 and 30, 1 Corinthians 2.7, that's our verse here, and Ephesians 1.15 and 11. Now, before the ages, as we look at the context, means before creation. That's clear in Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Before creation. God determined in his wisdom and eternal counsel that this would be the wisdom revealed in time, Christ crucified. And therefore, people must believe in him to be saved. Turn with me to Acts 4, 27 and 28, please. This is a little... Prayer, not a little prayer, profound prayer. And it shows that Peter and John, in this case, who were threatened and told, you can't preach in the name of Jesus. Name of means the, th- the authority, the pr- person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him. That's what they were preaching. They said, okay, you can't do that. So they went and had a prayer meeting. Let's see what they prayed. Ephesians, excuse me, Acts 4, 28. And 20, excuse me, 27, 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As part of their prayer. You can look at the whole context. Well, what was that? What did they do? They crucified Christ, but that was God's plan. They mocked him, scourged him. This isn't just placed on some kind of leaders. Who was it? The Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod, peoples of Israel. And so here we have compatibilism. And that's something that we've taught and will continue to do so. So in the context, Peter and John preached Christ and the resurrection. Every single sermon or speech in Acts and even in prayers mention the resurrection of Christ. That's the miracle that God gave as proof of the gospel. So the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. The hiddenness of it is not due to some obscure cryptic message, but God's plan to reveal Christ at the time that he did. And this is indeed predestined wisdom. As we have time, we will look at Ephesians 1.4 in our, one of our applications. Now let's go to the next point, 1 Corinthians 2.7. I have D here because we're breaking down each of these phrases. I don't do this lightly, but each phrase has concepts that have been disputed throughout church history. 
The only thing that matters is what Paul meant when he wrote them. Before the ages for our glory. How could a crucified Jewish Messiah, part of God's plan from, from eternity past, before the ages, previously hidden, now revealed, how could that be something that would be for our glory with our meaning, those who believe the gospel? How could that be? I hope if we don't have time to cover this thoroughly today, next week I'm preaching again, we'll cover it. But we need to understand that this is amazing. It's an amazing promise of God. So here we see that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the one who now rules at the right hand of the majesty on high, Psalm 110 and verse 1, whose work is the basis for the salvation of anyone who believes, the Lord of glory was put to shame, hated, mocked, whipped, crucified, mocked, all these things. And he willingly suffered shame so that the shameful, wicked persons who reject him, all of us, Jew, Gentile, whoever, those who believe will one day participate in glory. It's an amazing, amazing truth. Well, how could glory be shared? Well, not in the absolute sense. His glory is eternal. The triune God of the Bible is by nature glorious, but he's bringing sons and daughters to glory. And so as we're at this point, I want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that one of the reasons there's so much confusion, in fact, when people say they preach the gospel, we can't be sure they, what they mean by that. What is the gospel? Who is the person of Christ? And so let me explain that. It's very important. Jesus Christ isn't merely a religious leader. He's not merely someone who's like the various shamans of the world or holy men who came and he knew something we didn't know. He's the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He is indeed the creator, according to John 1, 1 through 18 and elsewhere, who came into our world. And as Eric has preached recently, he's the virgin-born son of God. He's the sinless one. He's the promised one. He's the unique one, fully human and fully God. Only Jesus Christ in all of history ever did something so profound as to predict his own death, burial, and resurrection and then accomplish it by God's spirit and by the purposes of God. The Bible claims that the tomb was empty and that he appeared to many witnesses. We're never going to say, turn off your mind, go into an altered state of consciousness, meditate, and maybe you'll get some wisdom. Because what you'll get then is deception. What we're preaching is public truth. Public truth. Even Paul said, King, you know, this wasn't done in a corner. You know about these things. You know what happened after that? I cited it. Or you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I wish I, I would that you would. I wish you were like me besides these chains. This is public truth. It's not a secret in the sense that we know secrets. So this one who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, came into this world to pay the price for the sins of of anyone who believes. That is what the gospel is about, the person of Christ. Now, some, we've done evangelism. I don't mean this group here particularly, but some of us were there all along. We used to go out in South Minneapolis and put the gospel out there and preach it. And some of the people working with us, very zealous in evangelism, one couple I said, well, would you come and I'd like to talk with you? I said, 
we need to preach Christ because their hearts are in the right place. I said, we need to preach Christ. So they got all a piece of paper. What does that mean? Who he is, what he did, why we need him, and why we, what, what he expects of us, repent and believe the gospel. They wrote it down. They wanted to understand it. Others say, no, I don't want to hear that. Here's Christ. And I mentioned this a while back. What does this glorified Christ who ascended to heaven, who's coming again to bring judgment, what does he command us to do? Repent and believe the gospel. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Do you trust him alone? And when we sing, are you washed in the blood? And songs like that, that uh, implies the entire work of Christ. It isn't just that it's the word blood, but that this was the sacrificial lamb slain before the foundation of the world, whose blood, the sinless one, will atone for sins and make us clean. I mentioned this either or a while back. Either this, embrace the shame of the cross now and have eternal glory, or reject the shame of the cross by seeking honor from this fallen world and then have the ultimate shame through the wrath to come. Did anyone preach to you ever that what we need to do is escape the wrath to come? If not, I'm doing it right now. Judgment will come at some time in the future. We need to flee to Christ. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him alone, and you will be saved. Turn from serving sin, Satan, in this present evil age, and believe on Christ. Through him alone, we have forgiveness of sins. Now, one point as we go to the apps. Because of history having gone on so long, almost 2,000 years since the events of the cross, people nowadays don't think the cross is necessarily shameful. It's this nice gold statue or uh, jewelry or symbol or whatever. And once Christendom makes Christianity seem attractive, we don't think we're embracing shame. Yes, we are. Growing up in Christendom will not save you from the wrath to come. Embracing Christ and preaching him and confessing him will lose you your Christian friends. Oh, yes. Many people have lost Christian friends when they've been told, well, I know you say you're a Christian, but have you turned to Christ? Are your sins washed away? Well, no, I'm evolving into godhood. Whoops. Wrong gospel. Let's go to the apps. I have two here. God's wisdom is now known because God has revealed it through Christ and his apostles. Though the word apocrypto, hidden away, is used, it's actually revealed. It's clear. Secondly, predestination is revealed to give believers hope and confidence in a world that shames and hates us. If there's any, uh, there's a lot of uh, words that if we even bring them up, you get a really negative reaction. Predestination. Oh, you're one of them. Um, I, I'm preaching from the scriptures, so if this offends you, we have to understand what it says and why it says it, because church history didn't make this up. It's revealed in scripture. And I'm obligated as a preacher and teacher of the word of God to explain the scriptures to everyone and not hope that somebody's going to like me. Uh, I don't have any control over that, but the Bible has already said what it said. And if we're misinterpreting it, we can discuss that next Sunday, whenever, but not during the middle of the sermon, but in Sunday school. Please bring your questions. Let's go to Colossians 1, 
25 through 27, which uses the same word hidden in the same tense, perfect passive participle. By the way, it's interesting, Eric was talking about this in Sunday school. This use of the passive here, having been hidden, I believe implies by God. God intended to reveal Christ at the time that he did in the manner in which he did. It's predicted in the Old Testament. But this is what we need to know. Let me read Colossians 1, 25b through 27. For according to God's commission that was given to me, Paul says, for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's some of our key words. Doxa, glory, revealed, hidden. All of these things are in this passage. Now let's look at what's said here. Paul was commissioned by God as an apostle who spoke authoritatively for God to make the word of God fully known. One of the things that derails Christianity over the centuries is willingly skipping around so that we can only have to look at the verses that already are things that we think we like and skip the hard ones or skip the ones that don't fit our group or our tradition or whatever. That happened even in Jesus' day, and he was rebuked leaders for that. But when you have to face these things, and it's not a sin to say, I don't understand something, but it's wrong to say, yes, I know, and that's not good. Let's go to something else. Or I know it means this when it really doesn't. What do, we, what do we have here? To make the word of God fully known. If the word of God is what it claims to be, the very words inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken to us by Christ and his apostles, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is good to know in this regard, then wouldn't we want to know what it actually says? It's not a secret. It's revealed. It's using languages that are understandable. And so Paul was called to do that. He's not deceiving us. So what's this mystery hidden for ages? He tells us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Believers have trusted in Christ. Their sins are washed away. That's revealed. And that's our hope of glory, the riches of glory, literally. The riches here. Wow. Let me make this statement. What was formerly hidden is now revealed. Here, mystery, mysterion in the Greek, is linked to the gospel as it is in Ephesians as well. Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. Mystery means that which we would not have known had God now revealed it. We wouldn't have figured it out. The rulers of this age didn't. We'll talk about that next week. But God revealed it. The question that really pierces our hearts, and it sure has for me, if God revealed it and we can understand it, and it's meaningful, are we still ashamed of it? Is it something we don't want to hear? Or are we willing to believe the truth of the gospel and realize that if all we had to hope in is what's going on in this sinful world that's heading for judgment and popularity in this world or riches in this world or lots of friends in this world that say, well, good, you're telling us what we want to hear. They were not understanding. There really is a coming judgment. There's really an eternity. There really a new heavens and a new earth. And there is a hope of glory. But the glory doesn't come in this world or in this age, but in the one to come. Do you believe that? 
If you believe it, then that's no longer a mystery. It's revealed. The content here in Colossians is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Eric pointed out this morning, and we talked about in Sunday school, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a preview of glory. Moses and Elijah were there, but disappeared. Voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, in whom I'm well pleased, Eudokia. There's a preview of glory. Is your hope of glory in this world? Or is it in Christ? Christ in you, the hope of glory. As you read on in verse 28, it says, we proclaim him. We proclaim him. If the content of our preaching never gets around to proclaiming the person work of Christ, then why would we even call this church? And some think, well, what Christian would be ashamed of the gospel? Those who are more concerned about religion than about the truth. Being pious in the eyes of men or proclaiming him. Let's go to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. By the way, on the website, I think I preached all the way through Ephesians, and I covered some of this in more detail. And some people are better than me than finding these things, but I know it's there. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. New American Standard Bible here. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I know that's a lot of material. We've covered it before. But here's how it relates to what we're learning in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now remember, that means before the creation. Before the ages. How can that be? After a lot of decades wrestling with this and ending up in a debate I hadn't signed up for, but I ended up in one one time. Some of you were there. Um, We don't have the privilege of messing around with what's said to make it seem philosophically acceptable to fallen man. Neither do we have the liberty to create some sort of system based on wrong eschatology that would say, ah, we're the predestined ones, we're the chosen ones because we were born in a certain church, a certain country, a certain race, a certain whatever. No, that's not it. Us here are those who know Christ by grace, the redeemed. And it's not because we're wiser than everybody else or smarter or figure things out nobody else could figure out. It's by grace alone. Faith alone. And if we look at the history of some of the conversions in Acts, such as Saul of Tarsus. I don't see Saul thinking, well, you know, I'm tired of this idea I had before. I think I would need something else. He was ready to kill any Christian he could get his hands on. He was full of anger and hatred. Jesus supernaturally appeared to Paul and said, why are you persecuting me? He thought he was persecuting Christians. He wrote these words. So these key concepts are important that apply to our passage. Before creation, proarizo, predestined, was used in these other passages, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 1, 5. And this glory, this doxa, that those who trusted him 
are looking forward to are things that are true, even though not yet seen. Those who believe the gospel, God's wisdom, Christ crucified, are destined for glory. We're shamed now. By the way, if we don't think glory is a scary thing in a way, we probably don't understand it. In the Old Testament, the idea of weightiness is used to describe the word for glory. And God in his being is weighty, unique, scary. Unless you're hid in the cleft of the rock. When Moses went up on Sinai, it's, it's a fearful thing. Even the theophany, which is still not the full glory, which we couldn't see and not die, required mediation by God so that we wouldn't die. How can we be destined to glory? Let's look at an overview slide that I borrowed from a previous sermon to show just looking at the Greek and the prepositions, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, I, I want to help us realize that we're not signing on to a creed from church history. We're wanting to understand the Bible. What does predestined mean? Well, all of these are revealed, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, using various prepositions. Number one, in love, highlighted in red there. Two, into adoption. And by the, word, by the way there, adoption as sons meaning given inheritance rights that we didn't deserve. Oh, that's very, very important. Through Jesus Christ, into himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, good pleasure, eudokia, key word to know, according to, into the praise of his glory and into the beloved. So there are seven prepositions that help us understand what predestined is about, pro arizo. Having predestined, Eric, excuse me, Eric's active participle, this is what God did. And some say, well, then why preach that? Because it's revealed. That's why I preach it. God doesn't waste words when he reveals something to us, but it doesn't imply anything other than the work of God alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and not any deservingness, deserts. Is that that right? We don't deserve it. If you don't say it correctly, find something you do know. We don't deserve anything. But this is what God did. This has been so confused and abused in church history. I I don't blame anyone for saying, what is that? But let's understand what is said. God did this. Now, let's look at Romans 8. This is so important. This section will help us have hope. Have hope. I'll read it and make some comments about it. This is our last slide. Romans eight twenty nine and 30, from the New American Standard Bible. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in this case, the tense here is aorist, which is something God did. I believe It doesn't mean that it's only a past action, but it has future implications. That same group are those who have the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 1, which is Christ crucified. But look at this group I have highlighted here. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's the same group. Glorification is yet a process. Let me tell you a story about that from when I was in seminary in the 90s. A new professor came in uh, toward the end of my time there. And I'll tell you a little bit about that story as we have time. 
But the first class that that professor taught was logic. So I took that class, and we learned various logical connections between things. Logic is neutral. It's just how humans learn things. And he taught it. It was fairly well taught. It was clear. And so he had an office. And I looked at this, what's called the golden chain, and I went to the professor, and I said, well, I'm looking at my Bible here, and I, from the logic we're learning, this is the chain argument. And what that would mean is that if predestined, called, justified, glorified, foreknew, all of these have to be about one group. If you break the chain, it's not valid. So if it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Is that correct? He said, yes, that is a chain argument. You know who that professor was? Dr. Lee Ron Schultz. And his, he didn't actually believe the Bible. That came out later. But he said, that is a chain argument. I met Eric because he asked me to help him get his money back because Dr. Lee Ron Schultz, so many years later, was teaching. He didn't believe any of this. The man became sort of a emergent philosopher and now is an atheist. I'm not tattling on him. He's proud to be an atheist. He knew logic. He knew the Bible, but he didn't believe any of it. Interesting. Now, here's the question. You can know logic. You could be like Festus and Agrippa and know these things weren't done in a corner. You could be like the soldiers at the tomb in Matthew who took money to lie and say, well, the disciples stole the body. They knew that that didn't happen. You could be like this Dr. Schultz who says, yeah, it's a chain argument. I don't believe any of it, but he didn't tell me that until later it became clear he didn't. But if it's true, that's our future hope. Grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone, probably not in that order, to the glory of God alone. Here's the question. If it's to the glory of God alone, how could we ever be glorified? I thought it was supposed to be to the glory of God alone, if you believe the five solas. Let me answer that. God is glorified by bringing sons to glory and allowing us to share what we would never have. What is such a heavy, awesome, fearful weight, kabod, uh, doxa, that would kill us and destroy us? You just, you can't do this. You can't break through. When, when the thunder and lightning and everything was happening on Sinai, they weren't saying, you know what, I think I'll get a ladder and go up there and tell God how he should do things. Did anybody do that? It was awesome. No, they instead they built a golden calf. What about us? How could we ever participate in glory? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ that cleansed our sins. We don't deserve anything. Dear ones, please, if our hope is in this world, in trying to stay alive longer, which is a good thing to do. But we don't have control over that. If it's only in the nations or the UN or the, the climate or all the things that people are worried about, well, that's our hope. I don't know where the glory is going to come from. But if we hope in Jesus Christ, we have promise from God who cannot lie that those who are called, meaning Hear the effectual call. Those are justified through Christ alone, predestined, which we only find out after the fact, will also be glorified. It's a certain thing. Glorified, doxadzo, as a, as a noun, as an heiress, active indicative. It's a verb form of doxa, glory. What's the context? Turn with me. We've got a little bit of time. Turn to Romans 8.28. I'll tell you what inspired me to really dig into this. I heard a preacher on the radio railing against Romans 8.28. Can you imagine 
that you're a Bible preacher and you get on the radio. These stupid Christians keep believing Romans 8.28. It's their crutch. Yeah, oh, oh, someone said. I heard on the radio when I was in seminary. So, well, why would you be against that? Let me read it. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So why did the preacher not think it was appropriate that we believe that passage? Because philosophically, he objected to it. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It was a crutch for Christians. It wasn't appropriate. We need to figure out our own way of seeing things. Turned out the man was an open theist. He didn't believe God even knows the future, other than certain things that are knowable. So omniscience was taken away and everything else. We've got time. I'll tell you a little more story. I was hearing that on the radio. And then at the time, often uh, I would be on KKMS and interviewed, and they had this debate they had all set up. And the one person was this fellow, Greg Boyd was his name. And the person who was supposed to debate him was a guy who had the same kind of education he did, pulled out with two weeks to go. And they asked me if I would do it, and I was just, I thought, well, I guess I will. I knew I was way overmatched, but I ended up in that. And here in God's providence, we debated. But I'm not ashamed to tell people that Romans 8.28 is true. And that those who believe are destined for glory. And that the gospel doesn't have to seem good and fair and right to the carnal-minded people that don't like it. Yes, PhDs, 14 books, all that stuff. But if you have the scripture, you can take that anywhere because God cannot lie. That was an amazing thing. Next week, we're going to look at another difficult passage, 1 Corinthians 2, 8, where it says that none of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom or they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's an irony. You think ahead of time. Here's the irony. Who could crucify the Lord of glory? Why would he put up with that? Why wouldn't he just call thousands of angels and say, there, wipe them out. I don't want this. Why? Because God has a plan that we, if we trust in him, can share that glory. Give you a preview. I'll be here next week. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness that you've allowed us, lost enemies of yours, dead in sin, to see things that no one would ever figure out had you not revealed it. And I pray that if there's any who hear this or offended by different terms used in the Bible, as I was at one time, may we just humble ourselves and let you teach us from your word whatever it means it means and help us proclaim Christ and not be ashamed and have the true wisdom and know what truly will take away our sins. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.